Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Today, I'm thrilled to have my friend Karen Schwind on the podcast. Karen holds a master's degree in English literature and composition and previously taught composition and literature at a state university and two-year college before joining the corporate world in organizational development. She has been published in literary magazines such as Athens Magazine and The Conspirator and written essays for Peach State Radio. She is in the process of writing a multi-novel, multi-short story series of historical fiction that takes place in New York City in the 1920s and 1930s. I am privileged to have been able to have a sneak peek at her writing, and I can't wait for it to get out into the world. She currently lives in the greater Atlanta area. Recently, we sat down and talked about Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. It's a book that I read years ago and just recently reread, as you'll hear a little bit later in the episode, and Karen had read for the first time. We had a wonderful time chatting about this tragic but beautiful book. Karen, thanks so much for being here today. Can you give the listeners a quick summary of Never Let Me Go? Never Let Me Go is a a novel about a group of people who grew up in a private school called Helsham. And at first you think that they're just students and they're going to the school, but it's not long before you realize that it's different. And you, you have to read a while before you finally learn that these are clones, that all of the children in the school are clones who were created from other people. And they were created specifically to provide body parts so that as the population ages and they need new organs to live longer lives and to get rid of the major diseases that typically kill people, they're going to take the organs from these children when they grow up. So the children don't have parents, they have guardians in the school, but they don't have anyone who's actually close to them except the other kids in the school. So you watch them as they grow up and you watch them as they then go out and they become what are called care. So they take care of the people who are donating their organs. And then after 10 or 12 years, they're expected to donate their own organs. It's a wonderful book, but it's a chilling book. It's difficult, but I loved it after I first read it. I've told Karen, I first read Never Let Me Go five or six years ago. It isn't a genre, if you can already tell, that I usually love, but I was surprised by how much I liked the book. It is a haunting story, as I just said one that causes you to contemplate it long after you finish it. I found myself thinking about it for months afterwards. I wanted my husband to read the book. We actually watched the movie together. I don't think the movie had as great of an impression on him as the book had on me. But Karen, what were your first impressions of Never Let Me Go? Did it take time to grow on you or did you like it right away? So let me say I've read Remains of the Day, and I've seen the movie when it came out. It was a big hit, and I think I saw it about four times over the years. And I also read Before We Were Orphans, I think is the the name of the other book of his I've read. So I had some acquaintance with the author. Nevertheless, I got a free copy of this book just in one of the little libraries, and it was short. And I was uh, had been reading a lot of big, heavy books, and I thought, well, I'll just zip through this one. And when I started reading it, I realized very quickly, you don't zip through this book. You, It really reads better if you take your time and you read it slowly and you think about what it's saying. And so I got into it much more deeply than I thought I would. I liked it, but I have to say that in looking over it again, so I read it maybe a month or two ago, but looking over it again to do this podcast, I didn't read it all the way through, but I read big sections. And part of the reason I didn't read it is because it was even better the second Mm -hmm. time. I mean, there's so much in it and it's so rich. And I found myself just on every single page with a pen in my hand, marking things up and Mm -hmm. uh, writing comments on the pages, looking for different themes. I highly recommend the book. And I really say having spoilers in this discussion will not in any way, I don't think, interfere with people's enjoyment of the book, Mm -hmm. because I think the more you understand it, 
And this is what great literature is, really. The more you understand it, the better it is, and the more you can read it over and over and over. So I got, both the times I got this book from the library, and I've seen it a couple of times at book sales, and I've I always kick myself for passing it up. But it was funny because when I got this recently from the library, it was in the young adult section, which I think is just an odd place for it. I don't know. It's just, just so heavy that I don't know that it belongs there as well. But it is such a good book. Before we were recording, we were talking about some major themes in the book. So Karen, would you like to share some of the themes that really stood out to you when you were reading it? Yeah. And one reason I picked up on these themes, and let me say I picked up on them much more the second time I read it or read through it. So I picked on them somewhat the first time through, but not nearly as much. They are themes you see in his other works. And one of them is attention to duty. If you've ever read or seen the movie Remains of the Day, then you know that you have this butler who served an English lord all his life. Uh, The English lord turned out to be a Nazi. And so at the end, the butler is driving along to meet someone and he's wondering if giving his life in the service of a great house was really worth it. Um, And he's looking back. And this is the other theme, memory, and how we construct our lives through memory. Um, And so you see that very much in that book. He's constructing his life through memory. And in the end, he sort of passed up love to be dedicated to this great house and this great Lord. So in this book, you see the same two themes. You see this woman who grew up with her two friends. She's telling the story. Her name is Kathy. And at the beginning, on the first page, You don't know what she's talking about, but she's not bragging, but she's obviously very, very proud of what a great carer she is, how she takes care of people, how her donors really like her and feel comfortable with her. And because she's so good, she's able to choose who she cares for. But by the end of the book, you realize she's caring for people who are donating their organs for the lives of others. And some of the people that she cared for were her friends. And one of them was the man that she loved. Um, and so it gives you a whole different perspective that by the end, you feel like she she really is putting her sense of duty ahead of even her love for her friends. It's, it's very odd. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's almost passive. In fact, mm-hmm. all the donors have this sort of passivity mm-hmm. about what they're doing because they've been conditioned to think that this is what their lives are all about. And then the other thing is, again, if you circle the word or underline the word memory, memory, or I think it happened like that, all the reference to memory, they're on almost every page, sometimes more than one a page. And so you see that part of what she does and part of what we all do, really, I think he's saying, is we reconstruct our lives by looking backwards. This is his only book that I've read, but I will, I'm going to be reading Remains of the Day for another book club, so I will definitely be paying attention to that. But I love how you brought that out about memory. And also when you were talking about duty and also um, giving up love, it, when we're talking about love and the love stories in, in this book, it's not the overtly romantic love stories. It's a very deep and I don't know the words for it, but a very lasting and just beautiful love story. And it's tragic what happens because of that. So I will get into more of the tragedies in the book, but don't let that deter you. Um, There are three friends that the story revolves around, Kathy, Ruth, and Tommy. I'd like to hear your opinions on Ruth in a little bit. They spend a semi-idyllic childhood at a school called Hailsham that you mentioned. They have guardians who help care for them, but they have no parents, of course, because they are created in a test tube. How are their lives affected by a lack of loving parents and also growing up outside of the family? And how do these children try to create a semblance of a family within their friend group? You touched on some of this in the introduction, but I just wanted to get any further thoughts that you might have on it. One of the things I think is so important and and so interesting in the book, well, first of all, they do form relationships. And so they form tight groups within themselves. And part of that, I think, is kids just do that naturally. You know, when we're growing up, we have our best friends and you form cliques. So Ruth is clearly the leader of the clique from a very early age. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Ruth 
I, I didn't dislike Ruth, mm-hmm. but she does manipulate mm-hmm. so that she keeps Tommy and Kathy from getting together. But finally, at the end of her life, she realizes that what she did was wrong, and she actually tries to make up to them for doing that. So first of all, you see them forming cliques, things like that, the way any normal kids would. But what you don't see, you know, there's nobody who really influences them. There's no mm-hmm. adult. And so they're very severed from the adult world. Um, and But you have secrets. And so the kids are always trying to go out by the pond or something so they can talk without all the other kids knowing. It's like they don't have anyone else to share their information with. But the main thing I saw in regard to family is that when they leave Helsham, they go live in the cottages, and those are transition places. So Helsham is one of the nicest places, one of the nicest schools for these clones in the entire country. And it's like, again, it's like going to this very posh English, what they call public, what we would call private Mm -hmm. school. When they get to the cottages, the cottages aren't very nice. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. When they, one thing Kathy notices, she's extremely observant. I do think you can trust her as a narrator, even though she's reconstructing this history. Mm -hmm. One of the things she notices is that a lot of the now really young adults, I would call them, are getting their mannerisms from the television. They're mimicking what the people on the television do. So so the older kids are mimicking what they see on television, like how to interact, even the way they touch other people. Like she notices that one of them will reach out and touch somebody's arm, and she realizes it's the way characters on TV do it. Then when they come, she notices Ruth. I think Ruth isn't copying the TV, as I recall. She's copying one of the couples who's copying the people mm-hmm. on the TV. So it's, uh, you know, you when you think about it, about how we get our mannerisms, you know, we're very mimetic people. So, you know, people sort of mime and, and then we pick up what they do. And that's how we begin to resemble our family. We act like our family. We talk like our family. I mean, if I'd been born in Great Britain, I'd have a British accent. It's not, <laughs> I don't have a Southern accent because it's yeah. some kind of genetic thing I was born with. We pick all that up through mm-hmm. uh, just this mimetic tendency. So there, they don't have that. They don't have families that they look like. They don't have families that they sound like. They don't, nobody's there saying, oh yeah, you know, you move your hands just like your Aunt Doris or something. Mm -hmm. And so they get this artificially through the television set when they're able to to get around TVs. Um, And I I think another thing, so, so first of all, all of that is just missing. But the second thing is there's a really powerful scene in the book where they're older and now, they're not sure when they first fully comprehended what their lives were about, but at some point they do. And um, so they all want to know who they came from. So we all have this deep desire to know who we came from. And it's why kids who are adopted will sometimes go out and seek their birth parents. Even if they had great parents and a great family, they'll still go out and seek their birth parents. We have this desire to know who we come from. So, for example, um, at one point, somebody tells Ruth that they think they found her possible. This is would be the person who donated their genetics in some way. We don't know how that worked. Uh, and so that would be her parent, I guess you could you could call it. And they all go, a carload of them go, and they go seek her because they want to know what she looks like. Ruth is curious. Of course, she's trying to act like she doesn't care, like it's no big deal. But it is. And so one thing you get in the book is, number one, they don't know how they're supposed to act. In fact, at one point, Kathy is looking at pornographic magazines Mm -hmm. uh, because they're trying to figure everything out. You know, how do you have a relationship with someone, a a sexual relationship? How do you interact? Just small things like how do you touch somebody when you're talking to them or should you touch them or they don't know. And so they're without a family. You don't know any of that. But the fact that they got in the car and they spent their day searching for Ruth Possible and she wanted it to be her. And the person who said they saw her found this woman in an office that was just like the office Ruth wanted her possible to come from. And then when it turned out not to be her possible, they realized the woman didn't look anything like Ruth. She was really disappointed. So you you see this longing in these people to know where they come from, to know who their family is, and to know how to behave. Like if we don't have family to show us, we don't know how to behave. They're just kind of thrown to the wolves when they go to the cottages. They're young children still, and they just don't have any guardians, any role models. 
and they've just got to exist as best they can. It's just, it's heartbreaking of, of just that, that section is, is very, it's very sad. But again, I think you love the characters enough that it helps you get through any of the, the bleaker parts in the book. We've talked a lot about <laughs> tragic things, but I also want to discuss what I think is one of the most tragic parts of the book, and it is the purposelessness of the students. Um, they do schoolwork and create art, but it has no purpose within it. They are free to engage in sexual relationships as young teenagers, even encouraged to by their guardians, but there is no chance of having children and it is engaged in purely for pleasure and animal instinct. Karen, why do you think that this is such a tragedy within the story? One of the main things that drives human beings is to feel like we have a purpose, that mm-hmm. our lives have meaning. That, And I think that when you look at our modern society, so we we were just talking before this started about the book Children of Men, and you see a lot of the same themes in that book. I'm not through reading that one yet, but you see a lot of the same themes. Um, so one of the things that people seek is they want meaning. We all want purpose in our lives. We want to feel like this isn't everything there is to it. And in the modern world, I think one of the things that drives so many issues that people have, I mean, we have this high suicide rate we've ever had. We had all these deaths of despair uh, with drug abuse, and we have the deaths of despair with, um, so there are three, uh, with well-educated people, it's suicide. With the working-class white people, it's um, opioids. And then with black youth, it's they're killing each other. But they're all deaths of despair when it comes down to it. And it's because when we lose contact with, well, I would argue God Mm -hmm. and with a higher purpose, with the idea that this life is not all, but this life counts. It really counts because it's going to determine in part what happens for eternity. So when all of that goes away and you don't believe in it, then the question is, what is the point? You know, how do you keep from living in despair? Why do you bother to get up and go about your day? So in the book, they had the same problem. I mean, their purpose is literally to exist, to save other people. That's it. And they know that they're going to die young. They're going to donate their organs and they're going to be dead by the time they're about 30 years old or so. So they struggle to find that meaning. And that's why it's so sad, because it takes away their essential humanity, their humanness. But the to me, the remarkable thing about the book, like you talk about the tragedy of it, it is a dystopian novel. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Part of the reason I think it's not as tragic as it could be mm-hmm. is because Kathy tells it in a very clinical way. Mm-hmm. She's very cut and dried. There's no um, modeling language in mm-hmm. it, nothing like that. I think the other reason, though, is that when you see them and they do grow to be close to each other, they do love each other. They don't fully acknowledge that Mm -hmm. uh, because Kathy doesn't because of her sense of duty that she puts above her emotions. Nevertheless, you see that they do love each other. And, and, and so just from a human standpoint, you think, well, they, they are human and their lives do have meaning. And they do have purpose because they did form relationships and they do love each other. So I think that's why we get so attached to them. So it's sad, but at the same time, I think that we see a purpose to their lives that they may not fully see. And it's sad because they're told they know their lives are going to be their roles in life, but they're not given a lot of detail about what to expect. And so it's just kind of like they're given free reign to just do whatever they want and just be children. But there's nothing that they're looking forward to doing as they get older. There's just this, I don't know, it's kind of like spinning their wheels. They go to the cottages and they have their some sort of paper that they have to work on. And they know a little time at the cottage, they realize, oh, we don't have to do this because there no one's going to read this. It's, it has, it has no meaning really. So it's very interesting. All the things that you said, Karen, a lot of thoughts on that just spinning around in my head, but I do want to get, move on to the next question of while, and this is going to tie in, I think, exactly with what we've been talking about. While at Helsham, the students are informed, as I've said, about their fate in life by their guardians uh, to become donors or carers, as we've said. While reading it, my mind was just reeling at the fate of these children. They are living, feeling characters you come to care about. I kept thinking how each of these lives had value. I think that was the thing that I took away the most after reading the book for the first time. 
for the most part, the characters are compliant with their fate, but we see the smallest spark of resistance with the rumor of deferment when a couple can prove they really love each other. And we can talk a little bit more about that. How does Never Let Me Go remind us of the dignity and value of human life and what role does love play into it? And I'm thinking of it, especially from a Christian perspective. That's a deep question. <laughs> yeah, I have to think about that. So, you know, part of it is you have Tommy, and I'm not sure I fully understand what's going on with Tommy all the time. He, at a young age, he has these kind of fits of rage. Mm-hmm. And then as he gets older and he realizes that there's nothing they can do, he has another fit of rage. And so I feel like he's the one more than anybody who kind of rebels against it. One of the things that's frustrating is how passive they are in the face of this. And you think, why don't they rise up? Why don't they do something bad? Why don't they run away? But they don't. They They just accept their fate. And that can be very frustrating. But I think that what really shows their humanity is the fact that they've been cloned you know, in some ways, this is a very existential novel because the existentialists believe that, and there are Christian existentialists and then the atheist existentialists like Sartre, but um, they believe that we're born kind of a blank slate and our experiences are what cre- create what they call essence, that we create an essence because we have experiences. And of course, from a Christian point of view, Uh, You would say, but God is constantly involved in this and God is pulling us towards him. And it's our relationship with God that helps us have these experiences and create the essence and so forth. But um, the atheist would say that the freedom to be who we are, we have total freedom to do that, but it's a burden. So it's not a blessing. It's a burden for the atheist because we're completely responsible for everything that happens. And so in some ways, we have these people who start out as clones and they seemingly have no soul. They have no essence. But because they have these experiences and because they love each other and uh, because they have real lives where things actually happen, they do, in fact, seem to develop into human beings. And one of the most heartbreaking things to me is, well, number one, one of the desires that they develop is, in fact, the desire to live longer. So in the end, uh, Kathy and Tommy finally admit, with the help of Ruth, that they love each other. And they've been told that they, if two people really love each other, that they can get a deferment to their donations and they can live longer. So they go to try to get the deferment. It turns out not to be true. But the fact that they want it so badly, the fact that they go to do this is tremendously important because it shows their desire to live, which is the desire that we all have, that all humans have. And so they do become human. The other thing that happens that's really important is their creativity mm-hmm. is very, very important. And there's a woman who comes, madam, mm-hmm. who comes and she gets their artwork. And um, so you always want your artwork to be chosen to go with Madam, and they don't know what she does with it. It's all very mysterious. So Tommy, part when he's young, the reason he has the rages is because he's not creative. He's not a good drawer. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. And so finally, one of the guardians tells him, it doesn't matter if you can't draw. It, it doesn't matter. So he, he quits worrying about it, and that's when he really matures and, and um, lets go of that anger. But then later on, he begins to draw again, and he actually draws these wonderful little animals. So his creativity does come out. And I think also two things about that. Number one, the fact that they are creative, Mm -hmm. that they, you know, like human beings, human beings are creative people. We all are. We create something, whether we cook or whether we draw, whether we paint, um, whether our creativity is just in the way we have conversations with people. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are great storytellers just with their friends and their family. We all have this creative urge. And I think the fact that they have a creative urge shows their humanity. But the other thing about that is, to me, this is really, really beautiful. So they have these periods when they can go and exchange things and, and buy things. And so they earn this, um, I don't think it's money, it's 
points or something some sort of like token point system i'm not sure i can't remember yeah exactly and and so then everybody can donate and people bring in just junk from the Mm -hmm. outside but they can go and use their tokens to get some of this stuff and one of the things i love is at the end ruth and kathy are talking and they're talking about the fact that they would actually use their tokens to buy things like um, one of the girls was known to be a good poet. They would buy her poems. Mm-hmm. And Kathy thinks, why did we do that? Because we could have just written another copy of the poem. Yeah. You know, we could have just memorized the poem. But And, and I think it shows mm-hmm. how they valued each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more more than things, they had formed real relationships and they really valued each other. And they were willing to spend the tokens that they had, which, which is really all they had. Uh, but they were willing to spend these tokens to own things from each other. And they each had their little box mm-hmm. in which they gathered their belongings. And so out of this, what could have been a very sterile world, mm-hmm. they actually created a community and they created a life such as it was. And they found things to love and people to love. And they truly valued each other. I know. And there's another point when Kathy gets one of the things that she gets with her tokens or or the the points that she gets is there is an album that she buys, a cassette tape that is called. uh, But who is it? It's supposed to be some singer. Um, I can't remember the name right now, but there is a one of the songs on the album is Never Let Me Go. And which, of course, is where the title comes from of the book. But it's also there's a very bittersweet scene where she is playing the album and she will get a pillow to pretend like it's a baby. So there's that desire to have children as well. They want to go on, they want to have this life, but there's there's this whole scene of her dancing around, pretending like she's holding a baby, listening to this song. And then the woman, Madam, walks in on this and just burst out into tears. And I think for Madam, it's this realization and it's something that she I mean she had already realized this but just that these children have souls and what have they done with their the desire to prolong their life and this te- technological advances that have been made what are what are the responsibilities and to these lives that they have created so it's just a like I said a very very bittersweet poignant scene and it just really shows their desire to have children, which is completely taken from them. There's no way of ever achieving it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, So I want to make a couple points about that. One of them is, I think the book has something to say. I'm I'm not sure I know what it is. I have no idea what the author's philosophy is or religion or whatever, but I do think it has something to say about the importance of having children. And that's part of what gives people's lives meaning and purpose. So you have all these Mm -hmm. People who who can't have children, um, they were designed not to have children. And you see that, for example, when they have physical relationships, they call it sex. Mm-hmm. Even when when Kathy loves Tommy and they begin to have a real relationship, it's still there's something very clinical mm-hmm. in the way she talks about it. And they still always use the word sex. They never talk about making love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's very difficult to read. And you really want her to be less clinical Mm -hmm. and you really because, you know, she loves him and they end up spending as much time as they can together before he has to start donating Mm -hmm. and um, before he ultimately is going to make that fourth donation, which is always if you live that long. Right. They don't call it death. See, so it's Mm -hmm. completion. And I think that's important, too. Um, And so you see the impact of not being able to have children, how sex really becomes meaningless Mm -hmm. and becomes sort of mechanical. But the other thing I think that is important that's important in the book that you just mentioned is technology. Mm -hmm. All of this comes about because of technology. And I think that's huge in our Mm -hmm. culture. We can see all the things people can do with medical technology, all the biological changes Mm -hmm. they can make with people. But the question is that we need to be asking ourselves is, mm-hmm. are these the right things mm-hmm. to do? We can we can do them, but are they the right things? So I would use a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. One of the examples I would use is, well, the main example, I would say, to keep from going into things that could be divisive, because I just mm-hmm. want you to get the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but years ago, 
people discovered, so iPhones are made in China, and years ago, people discovered how miserable the working conditions are in China for people who make iPhones. I had a friend who went there when he was working on an international business master's degree, and um, he, so they're looking at the iPhone factory, and they're walking around, mm-hmm. and there are nets over all the streets. And he said, well, what are the nets for? And they said, well, so when people jump out of the building um, to commit suicide, they don't hit the ground, they hit the nets. It, it, so they had such a problem because the working conditions are so miserable for those people. Uh, they had a problem with people jumping out of the building. And, it, you know, finally it kind of, so he had already told me that. And then at some point it did hit the news or whatever. And it, so at some point, um, Tim What's his name? Who's now the CEO of Apple? I can't remember his name. I know I can't remember but either. But he so supposedly Apple was going to do something about this, but they haven't. And mm. you know the truth is, we have all these people who talk about human rights abuses and all these organizations out there, and we're always about justice in our country and social justice. Nobody's done anything about what goes on in the iPhone factories in China. Nobody stopped buying iPhones, and um, Apple didn't do anything about it. And all of the people who say they care deeply about human suffering and human rights, that, you know, the truth is in our culture, Mm -hmm. we're not even willing to give up an iPhone. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so you see the same thing here, that Mm -hmm. that people on the outside had started to, they were the ones getting the art of these children And they were beginning to see that maybe these were humans, you know, maybe. But then what happened was, in the end, they were not willing Mm -hmm. to give up the benefits that Mm -hmm. they got from all of these organs. And they, because of something, and I don't want to give everything in the book away, so I won't tell what happened here. But but an incident occurred also that made them afraid Mm -hmm. that some of these clones could also disrupt their lives in other ways. So in the end, though, the the benefit they got from taking the organs of these people were too valuable. They cared too much about their own lives and living a long, long time, their own comfort uh, to actually stop the the program. And, and so you can look at it throughout our society. All the things we can now do with technology, we do. But I, I think that part of what the book is about and part of what I would say is true is that we're not taking enough time to stop mm-hmm. and think and say, okay, we can do this. Should we do it? Is mm-hmm. it the right thing to do? What is the long-term consequence of this mm-hmm. going to be? And what does it do to our souls? And it's also very barbaric what becomes of these children. They're eventually, or these donors, they're butchered. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they're butchered for their parts. I mean, it's supposed to be, they're supposed to be made comfortable. They have the carers that can speak up for them and make their lives easier but they're being butchered for their body parts. And it's so consumeristic, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. And it's, but it's also the people who are benefiting from it are removed. Like you said, from how in China, the situation happens there, but we're removed from it. And they are on purpose. They remove themselves in the book because they don't want to know about these clones. They don't want to know that they have a responsibility to them, that they have dignity and value beyond what they can give them. Um, so I want to jump off of that to the next question, which we've we've talked about a little bit more, but we can dive into um, just a little bit. That there is a very consumeristic view of life in the book where clones are created to extend human life and then they're just discarded. How does this differ from a Christian worldview of creation and responsibility? And in this story, what we've been talking about just now, what are the effects on the world where such advances in technology occur without accountability. I think that everything you said about consumerism is right on. I think the main thing is that when we, from a Christian point of view, that our faith in God has to come first. What that means in terms of human beings being made in the image of God, um, that has to be more important than what we buy or what we do. So it should color every single decision that we make. One of the issues, I think, you, you have different ways to kind of split things when you look in our society. Like there are people who think that they're not consumers, that they're not living in a world that's all about consumerism, but they all own iPhones. (laughs) And and then you have people who I guess I'd call libertarians. And I I know some, and uh, again, I'm not getting into sort of politics, but um, they do believe that it's all about consumerism. 
and it's all about everybody having total freedom and everybody just doing what they want. The problem with all of that, as we can see in what we're currently going through in our society, is that you know people can make a lot of money doing some pretty horrible things. Mm -hmm. And if the world is not underpinned, I mean, okay, let me give you an example. China has just flooded the United States with fentanyl that looks like mm -hmm. candy. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, and I don't know why they would want children to take fentanyl, uh, because it wouldn't survive, literally, but, but that's what it looks like. And so they said if a child sees the fentanyl, they're going to eat it mm -hmm. because it looks just like candy. So somebody out there is making a ton of money off this fentanyl. People have made a ton of money off opioids. They've made a ton of, the medical establishment makes money doing things that um, you have to question, you know, whether they should be doing it. Why do they do it? Well, they get rich. People get rich off of it. So these are the things that happen when we decouple consumerism, our abilities with technology, the things we can do from a supreme belief in a God who has established right and wrong and who has told us that the first thing we do is love him and the second thing we do is love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You know, he has said that love is the supreme, that that is how we distinguish ourselves. We even love our enemies or we're supposed to. Okay, no other, no other religion tells its adherents that, that they should love their enemies, but we are told to love our enemies. Uh, who is our neighbor? Well, really, everyone is our neighbor. If we're supposed to love our enemies too, everyone is our neighbor in some ways. So if we follow God, then technology comes after, consumerism mm -hmm. comes after. Mm -hmm. All of our decisions about all of those things stem from our love of God and our love mm -hmm. of other people and our belief that what we do, So, and this is such an important part of it, our belief that what we do matters. Mm -hmm. We've been covering Revelation, so today mm -hmm. in church, Mm -hmm. Jeff talked about Revelation and he talked about the book and how at the end we'll be judged by our works. That what we did, that, that the decisions we made in this life really, really count. Mm -hmm. They matter for eternity. And I think with consumerism, as it is practiced in our culture today, because we are post-Christian, then people really think that what they're doing doesn't matter for eternity because they say they don't believe in eternity. It's just what you can do now. And I think that's driving so many decisions, so many bad decisions. I do wonder if some of the younger, and I'm not sure about this, uh, if some of the younger generation is kind of looking, uh, I just feel like there are a lot of people who seem to be sort of returning to God and talking about God. And, and so, the, you know, it's almost like they've looked at the cold, dark world we see in this book. And they start asking themselves, is this really what we want? Is this really what we believe? So I hope that we won't go this far down the road. Although, as I said, I mean, when you look at so many things, and and, and I'm not against consumerism per se, <laughs> um, but I'm just saying that when you look at uh, so many things in our culture today, like the iPhones, you can't help but think that we need to really have a better moral foundation. Even Christians need to have a better moral foundation and really consider all, all of the impacts of how we spend our money and what we do uh, more deeply. Yeah. When you were talking about what we do matters, um, so Karen goes to my church. I, I think a lot of it, it's not, that's not to be taken as like a workspace, but what we do affects other people. And so that has, that has a great effect in eternity. And yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that out, Karen. And I'm also thinking about the fear that is in the society, in the book, the fear of what they've created. So it's quite a few times that the guardians will look at these children with fear and I think it's just that inability to come to terms with what they have they have created in the society and the world that they have they have made in their desire to have eternal life on earth and prolong their life. The, this, they have this fear of death and now they've just created this hell. It's a type of a hell with how these these children are created and treated. So it's just yeah, there's so much to think about within this book. It's it's a it's a short book like you said at the beginning Karen, but there is it's not a fast read. There's so much to mine from this book. 
Before we get to a few of our last questions, are there any quotes, Karen, that you would like to share from the book? I know that you were reading one. I don't know if you want to share it now, but you were reading one before we started um, that just really sums up what we were talking about earlier as far as duty goes. So there are a couple of them I could read. One of them is at the very beginning, and this is Kathy, where she starts out talking about duty. Um, She says, Now, I know my being a carer so long isn't necessarily because they think I'm fantastic at what I do. There are some really good carers who've been told to stop after just two or three years. And I can think of one carer, carer at least, who went on for all of 14 years despite being a complete waste of space. So I'm not trying to boast. But then I do know for a fact they've been pleased with my work, and by and large, I have too. My donors have always tended to do much better than expected. Their recovery times have been impressive, and hardly any of them have been classified as agitated, even before fourth donation. Okay, maybe I am boasting now, but it means a lot to me, being able to do my work well. Okay, so what are we talking about here? We realize as we go into the book that she's talking about taking care of donors. They are other people Mm -hmm. like her who are donating their organs. And so she is literally taking care of them after they've donated their organs. And some of these donors were her friends. Mm -hmm. She helped take care of Tommy, whom she loved. Mm -hmm. She helped take care of Ruth. Mm -hmm. And so she's talking about, and they're not the only ones, people she grew up with. Mm-hmm. Those are the people. So she's proud of her work, but you you have to think. But what what is your work? What are you mm-hmm. doing? Then at the end, it's a beautiful scene, but at the same time, it reinforces that theme that she is so focused on her work and being good at her work that you wonder if she hasn't missed mm-hmm. too much. She says, "I was thinking about the rubbish, the flapping plastic in the branches." The shoreline of odd stuff caught along the fencing, and I half closed my eyes and imagined this was the spot where everything I'd ever lost since my childhood had washed up, and I was now standing here in front of it, and if I waited long enough, a tiny figure would appear on the horizon across the field and gradually get larger until I'd see it was Tommy, and he'd wave, maybe even call. The fantasy never got beyond that. I didn't let it. And though the tears rolled down my face, I wasn't sobbing or out of control. I just waited a bit, then turned back to the car to drive off to wherever it was I was supposed to be. And so she has this beautiful vision of Tommy and, you know, whom she loved. And she acknowledges that finally at some point. But even there, she's getting this vision of him and of maybe getting him back. But in the end, what does she do? she turns back to be where she's supposed to be. I think that reinforces mm-hmm. that very first paragraph in the book um, where he, the author questions um, the whole idea of duty. And, and I think it's important that he is a Japanese. I believe he's Japanese. Of Japanese descent. descent. I should say yeah. Japanese-American. He's not American. He's, he's British. British. So yeah. What, uh, yeah, whatever they call him, he's of Japanese descent. And, and so I think that that's... One reason he looks so much at that particular theme, the whole idea of of the sacrifices you're willing to make for duty. But I do think that as much as I like Kathy when I read the Mm -hmm. book and as much as I admire her in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. I still think that there are a lot of questions about her dedication to her duty and Mm -hmm. and the ways in which that kind of stunts her, the ways in which it did not have to stun her, even though Mm -hmm. she's a clone, Mm -hmm. I think it stunts her in a way she did not have to let it stunt her. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see that compared to the other characters, how Kathy is compared to them. Hers is more of a staid passion. And whereas you have the rage of Tommy and sometimes you have the coldness of Ruth but there is just a, a little bit more even with them than Kathy allows herself to feel and to express. Um, we get her unguarded moments like when she's dancing as a child. But I think that she really is. She's almost a stoic, just almost in some ways. And it's it's just it's very sad. I, I think I think Tommy's one of I was going to ask you, Karen, what which is your favorite character? I think Tommy is my I don't know, for some reason, I have just, uh, my heart goes out to him the most. I think that those moments you mentioned earlier, his rages, I think it's just that rage against the purposelessness where he has his desire for more. 
he's full of life. It's sad to see how that is squelched. He's a very honest person and just what you see is what you get with Tommy. So do you have a favorite character? I'm not sure. I think it's Tommy. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if everybody's favorite yeah, character would be Tommy so. because he does seem most fully human. Mm -hmm. You know, he has these rages where he's kind of rebelling against what they're asking him to do and he's not good at it. But then he starts drawing the characters. You can yes. see he really cares about Kathy. And in the end, you know, he's honest about wanting to extend his life mm -hmm. and extend their life. And he cares about Kathy, and so he sends her off. He won't let her stay when he makes his fourth donation because he knows he's going to, quote, unquote, complete. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he sends her off. And so he is just the most caring mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. you know, character in the whole novel. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. just delightful. And that's mm -hmm. part of what makes his end so very mm -hmm. sad. Mm -hmm. And you, you want, or at least I want Kathy to rebel against that a little bit Fight. more. Yeah. You know, I do. I want her to rebel. Because you think, well, what would happen if they just left? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you want her to sob or something. So I finished yeah. this for the second time. And my family's recently been out of town. We were in an airport. We were going to Colorado. And I finished the last couple of pages right before we boarded our flight. And I was just making myself not cry <laughs> in the airport <laughs> because it is just a very it's it, the ending is just a gut punch but it's it's really good and karen did you notice i was going to ask you this i have this theory that there's those little tiny characters in our copy have you seen that within mm -hmm. within the chapters i wondered if those were supposed to mimic the characters that tommy draws i don't know i thought that was just like a little theory of mine you know i wondered the same thing okay. actually yeah, yeah. okay good yeah. <laughs> we're on the same page okay like I've talked about throughout this, there are some very heavy parts in the book, if you cannot tell already, but I still look at this as a redemptive reading for the stance on the dignity of life alone. And just it's reminding us of our responsibility to technology. What would you say to someone who is on the fence about reading Never Let Me Go? Why would you recommend someone read it? The first reason that I would recommend somebody read it is because it's true and great literature, and I, I really think this could be great literature, mm -hmm. uh, but, but really all literature, all creativity, it should have truth in it. It should have something about truth and something about beauty, and this does. I think mm -hmm. it's true what he, what he says, what he points to, and it's also beautiful because despite everything, and, and in a way, I think you could look at this and say, in some ways, our lives are like this. We don't have control over everything that happens in our lives, but we need to find purpose and we need to find meaning and we form relationships. And all of that is really beautiful. And in the end, they're able to do that despite the strict limitations to their lives. So that's the main reason. It's true and it's beautiful and it makes us care about the things we really should care about because by the time we get to the novel, we really, we're really angry about mm -hmm. this program. We're really angry about the things that people are doing to these children, mm -hmm. and we should be. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that's, again, that's what all really, not even great art, just really good art, mm -hmm. that's what it should do. It should make us care about the things we should care about. Mm -hmm. I agree completely, Karen. Uh, yeah, it's, I've read it twice. It's a worthy read. Like I said in the very, very beginning, when I first read it, it was a book I just, I couldn't stop thinking about. And it, the best word, and I, I said it earlier, is it it haunted me. And years later, it has haunted me. So I'm so glad that I reread it. Um, Karen and I were talking about, we read a book club and she threw this out as one of the titles for us to read. And then we were talking about, I wanted to have her on the podcast and we were talking about what we should discuss. And so she mentioned this. So I'm very grateful that she chose this book and I got to reread it and experience it for a second time because it is it is a book worthy of reading and rereading. Karen, before we go, I like to ask a quick round of literary questions at the end for fun. So what is the best book you've read in the last year? Well, this would definitely be at the top. Um, I really got into this, but a couple of other books I would mention, and I don't know if I've read this one in the last year, but Gentlemen in Moscow is excellent. So I always recommend that to people. And I think it's read. one of the best <laughs> yeah. modern books out there. And then I've actually read a lot of Russian history and Solzhenitsyn. And I read Solzhenitsyn's 1914. And I, mm -hmm. I actually really like it's It's a heavy read. It's Russian. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really like that. So in one of my book clubs, we're going to be reading. It's one of his books. It's The Life and Death of Ivan. 
No, it's something. Yes, so we're going to be reading that, and so this will be my first time reading him. Um, And I have a book. Once we finish for you, it's a book that I've already featured on the podcast. One of the best books I read a few years ago. I mean, a few years ago, like last year, Loris by Eugene Vodolutskin that I want you to read since you are in the Russian vein (laughs) of of books. So I think you will love it. What is your favorite book of all time? You know, I always have such a hard time answering questions <laughs> you can say like more that. than one. <laughs> yeah. And so I've been naming some of them. So years ago, years ago, when I was in college, actually, I used to love Henry James, The Ambassadors. I read it like four times. I've never read Henry James. Can you know, I know people who it? hate him because he's so dense. Um, now I'm reading, number one, I've read lots of Russian stuff. Yeah. And I really like. Uh, Amor Tolls, I think he pronounces his name, mm-hmm. last gentleman, or the gentleman in Moscow. So I'm really into his stuff from modern works. And let me think, who would I name my favorites? I've been trying to read more just kind of popular fiction. Mm-hmm. I've, so I listened to your podcast on mysteries. Oh, okay. Uh, one, one mystery writer I would recommend is, uh, and I don't know that my all-time favorite, but yeah. is Charles Todd. His Ian Rutledge, I don't particularly like his mysteries about the nurse, Bess Armstrong, I think they call her. But I really like his Ian Rutledge. And I've got my sister to read it. So now she's read, she's bought every single one of them. And she had read a couple. And then she went back when she got them all and started at the beginning and read them first. And now my dad is doing the same thing. And my dad has mentioned a couple times how much he loves the character of Ian Rutledge. So if you like mysteries, I'd say that's, that's a those are good. Mysteries. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to be looking that one up. That sounds so much fun. Have you ever read any of Dorothy Sayers? I've read a little bit okay. of her. I hate to say uh, I didn't love her. And you know yeah. what? Okay. Please don't throw eggs in my house. Everybody <laughs> out there. I'm not crazy about Agatha Christie. Oh yeah. I, there's one that I love. Um, 450 from Paddington is, it's one of my favorite mysteries. I love Dorothy Sayers, you know, about my love mm-hmm. for Lord Peter Whimsey, but Karen, I, I would really love to hear your thoughts on the book. And then there were none by Agatha Christie. So I have my friend, Rachel Atkinson, who was on the episode with me about Loris. She, we have very different readings of this book. So she loved it the first time she read it. I listened to it by narrated by Dan Stevens. And it was the most chilling book. And I finished it and I was like, this is like, being in hell. These characters, it's just they're hunted. They're murderers that come to this island and are invited to this island. Have you read it, Karen? Have you heard you of know, it? You know, I read that, I think, when I was a teenager. Oh, it's been I would so just, long, I can't remember. I would just love to hear your thoughts on it because it's just, listen, if you listen to it by Dan Stevens, it was just chilling. I listened to it while I was a seamstress and working, and I just felt like I needed to look over my shoulder the whole time because it was just <laughs> so, I felt so frightening. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Karen, what is a book you haven't read but have always meant to read? Okay. (laughs) So I mentioned Solzhenitsyn. I have tried and tried to make it through Gulag Archipelago. I just cannot. Part of it is he's telling all these horrible stories one after the other. And I've even tried the abridged version. Uh, Mm. Kevin Weinrich told me that it's the one book he's read that's just as good in the abridged version. I can't even make it through that. I hate to say it. I made it halfway through this time. And I think part of it is you get it. You know, Mm -hmm. once you read half it, you get what's Mm -hmm. going on. And the fact that I've read so much Russian history Mm -hmm. and I know so much about this. In fact, I just listened to a modern book about something that Putin did. So I I don't know. I just cannot. I feel bad about it. Uh, badly about it, but I can't make it through yeah. Gulag Archipelago. And I'll tell you another one. I love War and Peace. Oh, that's another one I would recommend. Okay. War and Peace is great. I have never made it through Anna Karenina. I just cannot get through that book. So I have a friend who loves Anna Karenina. I have a copy on my bookshelf along with War and Peace, which I want to read. But I have not read Anna Karenina yet, but she said that she had, she loved it. And she had all these notes on her phone. And she was going to go back and I guess reference them and just these beautiful quotes and her, her phone died and she lost all the quotes. Yeah. So she was, it was pretty tragic for her, but yeah, I'm supposed to read Anna Karenina with some friends at some point, but I just, I think I have to gear up 
I've really enjoyed the Russian literature like you lately. Um, I was halfway through Dr. Zhivago and I need to pick it back up. But yeah, Anna Karenina and I have dragged my feet about just because I just, I didn't want the well, tragedy. <laughs> number one, they're time commitments. Yeah. But the other thing is, I just get, and I can't get through Wuthering Heights either. Oh. And, you know, to me, the thing about both Wuthering Heights and Anna Karenina, I know everybody will say, but in the end, da -da, but I'm just like, I just, uh, these mm -hmm. are just kind of stupid women who make bad decisions. I'm just not... I, I don't know. I yeah. just I just don't like it for that reason. And I think, no, I don't want anything to do with yeah. these women. Why are they doing this? These are all dumb <laughs> decisions. Forget it. I just cannot get through those two books. So I am still negligent in getting out the Wuthering Heights episode that I have promised many times on the podcast. But I read Wuthering Heights as a teenager and loathed it. And so I decided to, I said on the podcast many times ago that I would was going to read it and, and see my another opinion on it. And I got through most of it, listening to it on audio. The woman who plays Anna on Downton Abbey narrates it and does a phenomenal job. So I got through it and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed how well Emily Bronte writes. I am have a working theory that we are not supposed to like Heathcliff and he's not supposed to be a romantic hero, even though some people have made him. Um, I think it just shows what bitterness maybe I'm I'm hoping, I think, that Emily Bronte is just showing what bitterness does to us and obsession. And oh, I thought how, he was terrible. Oh, I he's awful. He was just brutal. I couldn't yeah, stand it. No. That's my yeah. thing. I didn't like the no, characters. No, he's terrible. Thought, Why am I going to read books about right. people I don't like? Yeah, yeah, I know. So I'm, I'm on the fence still about it. I don't hate it as much as I did when I first read it. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I had strong opinions about it. Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre, though, I have read it and I have no good things to say about him. So I'm sorry for people who love who love the book. Um, if you could invite any author or literary characters to dinner, who would it be? Let's say three to five people or characters. I always tell people they can cheat. And what would you serve? I'm so curious to see who you're going to pick. So I like to write myself yes. and I have some books and short stories I've yes. written. So being the kind of person I am, I would be very practical and I would invite some modern authors like Amor Tolls and because I would want to talk, I would want them to ask about what I'm writing yeah. and say, oh, let me introduce you to my agent. <laughs> yeah. Um, talk about consumerism, strictly <laughs> transactional. The thing is, if I invited him, I can tell when I read his books, like when in, in my writing, my characters eat things like mashed potatoes and meatloaf uh, because yeah. <laughs> that's what I know how to cook. Right. And I'm not a fancy eater. You could tell in his books. Like when I was reading yes. Gentleman of Moscow, I thought, yeah, I bet he didn't even have to Google all these wines and, <laughs> and what goes with what. I bet he just knows that stuff. Yeah. He used to be a financier before he became a writer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I would have to really, um, I probably have to take him out to eat. I don't know that I could cook anything that would really appeal to his yeah. finer palate. So in terms of, you know, real people, I would want to just choose some good authors or maybe just go straight to the Asians and bite them yeah. <laughs> over who knows. Yeah. Um, and let me see. So in terms of characters. Right. When I was younger, I probably would have chosen somebody out of Henry James because mm -hmm. I wanted to envision myself as being one of those rare people in fabulous clothing. <laughs> but, in the, you know, at this point in my life, I'm over that yeah. sort of romanticism. And so I probably would choose somebody out of maybe a more modern book. And it would be somebody I would really have a lot in common with. Mm. So it might be a character out of, oh, I'll tell you somebody I wouldn't mind having dinner with is um, Ames. Isn't that his name? Out of the Robinson books? Yes, Gilead. Yes, yes Gilead. Yes. I mean, people that you can mm -hmm. sit down and just have beautiful, mm -hmm. rich conversations with. In fact, I'll recommend another book to your readers. Have you ever read Abide With Me no. by Elizabeth Stout? No. Yep, that's a good one. People should read this that one as well. Oh. So, yeah. So today I'd probably just reach out to some characters that I'd actually want to spend an evening with and have great conversation with. I love that answer, Karen, because that's not usually, we. I don't usually get people saying that. I think that's wonderful. Finally, do you have any book recommendations to share? Any more book recommendations? 
Well, I was going to say, I just shared a whole bunch. Um, so, you know, one thing that I have been doing lately as well, because I do, mm -hmm. I'm trying to keep up with what's out there in historical fiction, which mm -hmm. I, is what I write. And um, so I have been looking at some of the authors who write historical fiction, and some of them are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Okay, some books I recommend. Um, I really, so I read one book of Jojo Moy, or I listened to it on audio, mm -hmm. and I really liked it. And I see why people like her books. Her characters mm -hmm. come alive. They're interesting. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would say I didn't like, and I think she does this in more than one book, and I see this as a pattern in women's literature right now. So people get married, but the husband's always the bad guy. Right. And they the women have this, well, it's really an adulterous relationship. They might not actually be mm -hmm. having sex with the guy, but mm -hmm. it's really adulterous and he's the good guy. And so they find an excuse for the woman mm -hmm. to get to leave the husband to go. And I think, why is it mm -hmm. that they never, ever portray marriage? Mm -hmm. and like we're supposed to mm -hmm. believe that the second marriage is going to be fabulous, mm -hmm. but the first marriage never is. And so they really... Uh, portray, she portrays marriage, that first marriage as, as being bad mm. and really encourages kind of this adulterous relationship. So I struggle with that, but I can mm. see why people buy her books. They are interesting. They're fun. They're just a, a good read. And another book that or another author that I really mm. like a lot is Kate Morton. Kate Morton. I was trying to think mm -hmm. of her name. And I one thing I don't like about her is in all of her books, she starts, she has a frame. So she starts out, and you're in modern times. She sets it up, and then some character has to go digging into their past mm -hmm. to find out what happened to some relative. And then you come back at the end to modern times. I think it works beautifully for some of her novels. Mm -hmm. There are at least a couple of them I thought, I don't, you know, mm -hmm. she keeps going with this, but this particular book would have been much better without that. Mm -hmm. But I think all of her books are worth reading, and some of them are really, really, really fabulous. What was, go ahead, what was the one about, um, it's the daughter is the actress and she sees her mom commit the murder. The, she that's, thinks it's a murder. What's, what's, what's the I name of that remember, one? But that is actually my favorite. That's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite absolutely. too. And I can't remember which one it is. I'll, I'll try to have it in the show notes because I'm running, I'm just a blank on that. But that one's my, my favorite one. Me too. Yeah. I was going to say one of the things I like about Kate Morton, too, is, you know, there's so many authors now, and I know that they put a lot of pressure on people to do this, uh, to churn out a book a year. Mm -hmm. You just can't write a really mm -hmm. good book a year. I mean, you can get something like the Charles Todd Mysteries. All of his characters are set up. He knows who they are. He just has to give yeah. them a plot. He's not trying to mm -hmm. write great literature, right? He's just writing a good mystery. Mm -hmm. So they work fine. Some of them are better than others. When you've written 30 or 40 novels, some mm -hmm. of them are going to be better mm -hmm. than others. But what I really like about Kate Morton, even though, as I said, there are some of hers, um, some are better than others, but she takes several years to write her novels. Mm -hmm. I feel like she really spends time on them, and that's why they're just better written novels. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. really well written. Is it called The Secret Keeper? Is that what it's called? I think, that, I I think, think that's, that's I think that's yeah. what it's called. Have, did you listen or did you physically have a physical it. copy? Okay. I actually have several of them. Because novels. I have listened to them mostly. Mm. I've read a couple, but I've listened to it. The narrator that they have is a really good, really good narrator. I was going to throw out a book that I'm reading right now. I have a couple of books in book clubs that I'm supposed to be supposed to be reading. But I found this book at our one of our used bookstores in town. Have you ever been to Walls of Books, Karen? No, I didn't know yeah. it existed until about maybe three weeks ago. Go to the one in Watkinsville. It's really okay. good. I'm giving away secrets here. <laughs> but I I was waiting to pick up my little girl from school, and I was just browsing the shelves, and I came across this book by, I think the author's name is Morris West. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. I think he was a Catholic writer back, uh, I think he died late 90s maybe. But it's this book called The Devil's Advocate, and it is so interesting. It's mm -hmm. about a dying priest who is the church's devil's advocate where there is a, a man that this small village in Italy, they are applying for him to be for sainthood for this, this man who has been killed by communist uh, like a, maybe a decade ago. And he is charged with going into the town and trying to dig up any dirt he can to prove that this man would not be a saint. But so far, it is a fascinating book. So many rich characters. 
there's mystery. There's so much about humanity, our Christian life in the book, and it's just done so well. So that's right now I'm like 130 so pages in. It's a pretty thick book, but I wanted to recommend it to you to read at some point with your many, many book li- <laughs> many books on your list. So, um, and that, and I, I'm going to read it a little bit more. And if it's, if it passes the test, I've probably featured on the podcast because I've enjoyed it so much. I have enjoyed having you on the podcast so much, Karen. I know Karen in real life. She's part of one of my book clubs. We were in a writing group together. She is part of my church. She is a friend. And it was so much fun to get to sit down with her, have undivided attention to talk about books. So thank you so much, Karen, for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It has been a lot of fun. I've been listening to your podcast and they're wonderful. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you. And we'll I'll have you on again. We'll have to like to do a mystery or something. Okay. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect, you can find me on Instagram at wellreadbeth. And if you've enjoyed today's episode and the podcast in general, would you consider leaving a rating or review? It's just a small way you can help other people find the podcast. Well, happy reading. Until next time.